0: Let us turn now in God's holy words to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy and chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And in a moment, we're going to be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22. We're going to be looking at the topic of the law of God here this evening. The law of God as it points towards us as God's covenant people. And when we think about the law today, in today's modern church, the church in the Western world today, what is normally the reaction to the law of God? Is it positive or is it negative? Usually, often, not always, but often the reaction can be negative, if not to the entire law or the idea of law-keeping, but at least a part of it. The idea that we have responsibilities before God The idea that we have to and are required to obey the Ten Commandments, which is the summarization of the law of God. That idea today will often be labeled as following. Well, you're a Pharisee. You're a legalist. And you might have heard this in your own time. Christ has done away with the law. What do we need with the law today? You may have come across this yourself. You may not have come across this. But I have personally seen this. In my own experience, the view of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, is very negative. Especially outside of Northern Ireland. And this all to say, dear friends, we need to be sure what we believe because we have a world around us that is changing what it believes almost on a daily basis. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. But what about you here this evening? We can talk about the outside world and we can talk about all the faults and failings of the world. But what about us here this evening? Do you have a negative view of the law? Hearts of the law. May the Lord help us as we read this passage. To love his law. To find it a, a delight. To, uh, that it would make our hearts rejoice. May the Lord help us to have the right attitude. Not my attitude, dear friends. But God's. More in conformity to his image. One that is pleasing before Almighty God. So let us read now from verses 12 to 22 of God's holy word, Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good indeed heaven and the highest heavens belong to the lord your god also the earth with all that is in it the lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and each shows their descendants after them you above all peoples as it is this day therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer for the lord your god is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, gives him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, You shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. When you are driving in your car and you're driving along the road, there are these signs you might notice from time to time, and they'll have a number on it. And there might be a red circle around that number. These are, of course, speed limits. We may not like speed limits. I think because not many people love speed limits, but we often keep the speed limit, don't we? Out of fear of the consequences of not keeping that speed limit penalty points, a fine. But rarely do people say this Oh, I love these speed limits. Oh, these are fantastic. We normally have negative views of rules, don't we? Of any kind. In Germany, they have these roads called autobahns. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, autobahns. And apparently, so I've been told, you can go as fast as you like on these. There's no speed limits. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? Oh, that sounds wonderful. Now, even though you may have no intention of going any faster than the speed limit which we have here. You probably get to 70 miles an hour and go, I don't want to go any faster than this. I don't feel safe. But you just like the idea, don't we? Well, I could go faster if I wanted to. If I want to, I can. We often hate the idea of being told you can't do that. But if there were no speed limits, we'd probably get nervous, wouldn't we? Probably thinking, if there was no speed limits, those other people who are driving on the road, well, then the road would get pretty dangerous. I guess what I'm trying to say is this we're often very quick to apply the rules to other people and not to ourselves. Some rules we see in life are very silly, some laws can be incredibly oppressive and downright cruel some laws we shouldn't think the best of in our society but not so with the law of God there's a major difference with with God's law why yes the source of the law but also more than that what it teaches us about ourselves and about our God in heaven and what it teaches us about our attitude to our God in heaven, it says a lot about how we view God. So let us look at God's law here this evening. And we're going to look at it under four headings. Looking at this text of Scripture, under four headings number one, it's necessity, number two, it's observation, number three, it's righteousness, and finally, number four, it's blessing. It's blessing. So, number one now, it's necessity. It's necessity. In this text, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we see Moses delivering instructions to the people of God before they enter into Canaan, before they enter into the promised land, before they cross over the Jordan River. And there are no better deserving of the land than any of those people they will be facing in the book of Joshua. It was God's mercy that they had the land in the first place. It says in verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 10, As at the first time I stayed in the mountain 40 days, this is Moses speaking, and 40 nights, the Lord also heard me at that time, and the Lord chose not to destroy you. It's interesting. The Lord chose not to destroy you. It is of the Lord's mercies. We are not consumed today just as much as in that day. It is by promise that they entered into the land at all. Verse 11, then the Lord said to me, Arise, begin your journey before the people, that they may go in and possess the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. The reason they have it in the first place is it was promised to their fathers. It was by Promise and based upon the faithfulness of God and God alone. Now with this, and when we hear this, what might we and what might they be tempted to think? Well, we didn't get the land because of our law-keeping. It had nothing to do with us. It's of the Lord's mercies. It's by his promise. It's because of what he's promised to his people. So we might think, well, The law of God has nothing to do with us. We do not need to keep the law. What benefit it is of us to keep the law? Part of this is true. Our performance doesn't merit anything we get from God. It could not. But we must not think that that means that the law of God is not required or necessary for the Christian. For the covenant covenant. People of God, for brothers and sisters in Christ, we are God's covenant people. If you go to Romans chapter 11, there's one olive tree been described all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And the Gentiles, that is us, we are grafted in through, by faith, one people from the Old Testament to the New Testament, by faith. What does Moses tell them, these covenant people? Verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your Good. This law keeping does not save you. This law keeping does not give you the land. They entered into the land by faith. And we get our heavenly Canaan by faith in Jesus Christ. Our heavenly Canaan. Our inheritance in heaven. Because of Christ's law keeping. But at the same time, he says to them, this is required. It does not save you, but the law is there. It is necessary for us to follow and to live by. It is necessary in an outward sense, you could say, to show we are covenant people. How are we different to our lost neighbors? Maybe even family members or anybody else. What makes us look different Yes, we may invite them to church. Yes, we may share the gospel with them from time to time. But what makes us different, we follow God's law. However imperfectly we may do that, we follow God's law. Or put it another way, we are like Christ, or more Christ-like. At least we ought to be. We are to strive, not just for partial obedience... We're to strive to be like Christ. And this is what the law is there for. Here's what the character of Christ looks like. The law of God. Following and obeying the law of God. So do you see, dear friends, the law is necessary for us. What would it say if we set the law aside? Saying this has nothing to do with us today. I am saved by grace so that I don't need to think about the law of God at all. What if you you find no delight in the law of God? What does it say? What does it say to the world? What does it tell the world? Now, none of us delight in the law of God as much as we should. But following the law of God, what does it say? I don't belong to myself. I belong to another. I serve my master, and here is his word, and this is how I live. Not my will, but thine be done. That is to be our attitude, just as much as it was for Jesus as he was in the form of a servant. We belong to God. That's what following the law says. We belong to God our life is not our own to do with as we please this is why when we're making hard life decisions we pray before almighty God and say Lord if this is not your will please make it clear to me Uh, direct me in the way you would have me go it is not because oh I like to do this no 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 it is because God wants this his ways are better and it also shows that if we love the law of God we love him we love God. The law and its standard is really God in His moral perfections, in His moral standards, in who He is, in His goodness. That is the standard. Absolute, perfect, moral perfection. And of course, we could never be saved that way because we fall short in our keeping of it, but it is necessary. And Christ kept it. That law which we fail to keep, which we strive to keep, but we fail to keep, Christ kept it in every jot and every tittle perfectly. So that when we are looked upon by God in Christ, He delights in us. Not because of us, but because of Christ. He doesn't see law breaking. He sees Christ's perfect law keeping. And we need it as a guide as well, don't we? To life. How do we make decisions? How do we we know what to do? Because in this world, we're surrounded by darkness. Darkness. We need light. It says in Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. On a dark night, walking through a dangerous field or a forest, you would welcome light, a torch of some kind. Is it needed? Absolutely if you're going to make it from, from your, back to your home safely, you need light. And the more you see that this is light, the more we will go to it. Imagine turning off a light if you're in the middle of a dangerous field. You stand on something, it could hurt yourself. You wouldn't turn off that light, would you? You'd turn it on, you'd flash it. You'd, you'd look around, where is the best way to go? Without that light, you will be blind to what is the wisest course of action. This, This is required. God requires it of us to follow it for his glory and, dear friends, as we're going to see later, for our good. So we've looked at its necessity. Now, number two, we're going to look at its observation. Its observation. It's needed but how do we keep God's law? You see, we can have a very cold, external, religious, used in a, in the, in a poor way, but it can be in a very external way we think of law keeping. And this is why we can have negative views of the law and following the law and obeying the law. We perhaps grew up, maybe we saw examples Of mere external religion. Mere outward conformity and nothing else. This is not what the law commands. That is not law keeping. That is a performance. It is a performance. And God is not impressed by it one bit. It is not just a cold external way for show at certain times of the year religious occasion. It requires the fear of God. It says in verse 12 once again, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? The fear of the Lord is needed for observation of the law without fear, without a reverential respect for God, without a sense of His greatness, His might and His power, we lack the wisdom to keep the law of God. It says in Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding It is the beginning of wisdom. We need the fear of God. What do you fear? What do you fear here this evening? If you fear God above all else, here's what it will look like. You will cling more to the law of God because if you fear God, the more you fear God, the more your greatest fear is dishonoring God. Giving reproach to his name in public. Breaking his commandment. Even though you know that's not how you're saved. But you love him. It doesn't just come out of consequence. I'm going to do this in order that something bad doesn't happen. No, no, no. I love him. I love my God in heaven. I love learning about him. I love to follow him. So when I break his law, it breaks my heart. See the difference? Best way probably to illustrate this is if you have a deep and close relationship with a parent. And maybe when you were younger, you were disciplined a lot. And all you feared was the rod. But there came a point in your life you respected your father or your mother so much that if they just gave you that look of disappointment, it was far worse than the rod. You didn't want to see that look of disappointment in their face because you love them. Not only do you love them, you, you respect their opinion. And their opinion matters greatly to you. See, dear friends, it's not just out of the fear of the consequences. We think so highly of our God that we fear disappointing Him. We want to cling to His law because we know that this is what pleases Him. The fear of the Lord as well because we see His greatness. What does it do with all other fears? We, we are mere creatures and we fear things. We, we are afraid. Sometimes Legitimately, And it's right to do so. If you see your child in the middle of the road. You have a fear and you jump in front of it. But the fear of the Lord drives out other fears. Making us fear God above all else. If we fear other things. We will serve them. We will serve them. Whatever we fear. Perhaps. We fear the opinion of men can be a very tormenting fear. Oh, what is, what is so-and-so saying about me? Oh, maybe he doesn't like me anymore. Maybe I need to... It can be very tormenting to be afraid of, not, of people not liking you all the time. But what did Paul say about this? The Apostle Paul, Galatians 1.10. For do I now persuade men or God... Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now this is not Paul saying, I'm going to pick every argument, I'm not going to get on with anybody, and it doesn't matter what anybody says. This is not what Paul is saying. But his primary motivation is to please God, because he fears God. He's not first and foremost seeking to please men. He's not being tossed to and fro with every prevailing opinion that exists. If we seek to please God, it is because we fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. Realizing his greatness so that when we come here into his presence, into the Holy of Holies here, in this worship service, which we offer Our praise and our thanksgiving according to the will of God. And we we would not dare bring anything else into the offering of God. Why? Because we see the greatness of God. And we see how tarnished our own will is. We think there of Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 to 3. They changed the offering of God and they died. The fear of God. The fear of dishonoring Him. Coming before Him what it seeks to do. Now this is also not to be understood as walking on eggshells. Afraid you're going to do anything wrong. And I hope this is not in any way understood like this. But where we approach God, seeing His greatness, we will fear Him. If you see Him as great... You will see his law as great. Now, out of that law and seeing it's great, what will you do? You will, verse 12 once again, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart. So, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways. That's what it leads on to. The fear of the Lord will lead on to walking in the law. And notice how it says walking. How often do we walk? Walk. Daily, It is not something we do, at least I hope not, once a week. This is something we do daily. This is part of everyday life. Our service of God is a daily lived out reality. And if we want, dear friends, if we want our religion, our profession of faith, and we, if we want to say with a clear conscience, Jesus Christ is my master, he's my Lord, he's my king, if we want to be able to say that to the next generation with a clear conscience, it must be this way. Our children, the next generation, will see right through us. What do we get excited about? What do we love? They'll see it. And in a, in a sense, it won't matter what we say, they'll see it by our actions. This is what it means to serve with all your heart, not with part of your heart, with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, everything. Everything. There may be part of your life that is under the dominion of sin, tormented. You may be a saved Christian, but you're being robbed of that joy because of a certain area of your life where you continue to play with fire. Everything. The Lord demands everything. You do not see this in Western Christianity today. Because we live in such comfort. The Christians in China. Cannot. Even contemplate this. Because. They have to give everything to the Lord. Why would they suffer. So. We can be casual. About our Christianity in the West. But there are places. Like China. And others. Where they cannot. They're either all in or they're not. This is calling for all of us. Verse 13 says this. Verse 13. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. In a lot of ways, this may seem to repeat itself. But it really emphasizes different perspectives. See, we can think we're keeping the law of God, but it really gets into every area. Fear the Lord. Love him. If, if, if love is lacking toward God, if we're, if we're not actually doing the things in the law of God, Jesus said to them, if you love me, keep my commandments, because if you truly love me, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like commandment keeping, because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. It was an old saying years ago what would Jesus do? Well, very simply, dear friends, it is the Ten Commandments, the law of God. It is wisdom itself. Our faithful high priest kept the law in every single point. And so we must aim and seek to be like him. Our third point is its righteousness. It's righteousness. So we've looked at its necessity its observation, and now its righteousness. Verse 14 first says this, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also, the earth with all that is in it. Verses 17 to 19 as well. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So it's necessary for us to have this law, We've looked at this observation. We need to obey it. We cannot run from it. The law is required of us. But. There's another reason to keep it. It is good. It is righteous. Put it another way. It is the right thing to do. If something is contrary to the law of God. By definition. It is not the right thing to do. God's law is good. It's perfect. Converting the soul, making the simple wise. If we want to know what is good, we need to look into the law of God. It is righteous. It says in Romans 13, we read this earlier, Romans 13 verses 3 and 4, for rulers are not A terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? For what is good? And you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, as we read that verse, as we read these verses, think about our elected officials in Stormont our elected officials in Westminster and often they'll say we need to do the right thing I don't know if you ever hear hear politicians saying that we need to do the right thing but how do they know what the right thing is to do how can they as it says here for rulers not a terror to good works but to evil what is good and what is evil what is their responsibility as god's ministers as that's what they are they're to serve god in their capacity as magistrates as ministers of god as they've given this position here what is their responsibility before god the 10 commandments the same good righteous and holy standard we cannot reinvent or bring in new things that we can say and determine what is good, what is righteous, what is holy. Rulers r- rulers are to follow God's law. Now we may say they do not know. It is not because of a lack of information. Our rulers may never have read the Bible But they're surrounded by information that condemns them. What do I mean by that? The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 verse 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven above. Romans 1.18. What does that mean? It means that the creation itself. Screams out and preaches and declares. That there is a God who made all this. And he must be obeyed. And that is enough information to condemn. Not to save. We must go to the Bible for the gospel message. That Jesus Christ came and died. But his goodness, his wisdom. Is shown in creation. So then dear friends as Romans 1.20 tells us. We are without excuse. We are without excuse. God's law is that which is good and right. Verse 14 tells us why. Why does every single creature, all the image bearers of God, why do we have to submit to God? Because it all belongs to him. Verse 14, indeed heaven and the the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth with With all that is in it. Think about it dear friends. He has made every single particle of dust that is in the universe. The stars, the moons, everything belongs unto God. Everything has been made by God. Everything is sustained by God, kept by God, maintained by God. And so by that right, as the one who sustains all things... By whom all things depend, he has the right to determine and say what is good and right and for us to follow. We depend on him, he does not depend on us. Our God depends on none else but himself. It all belongs. To God. Now, you might be here this evening and thinking, I don't like, the, the, I don't like this. This sounds a lot like a, a theocracy. And there may be Christians at times that may get scared. They may have seen ugly examples from history of people saying, I follow God. And it goes terribly wrong. And there are examples of things like this. But dear friends, the problem is not with the law of God. The problem is with man claiming to follow God. What does it say of the law of God in James 1.25? But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty. It is not bondage. It is the perfect law of liberty. And continues in it. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work This one will be blessed in all that he does. We're warned of such men who think they are really serving God. We talked about this in John 16 verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you, whoever kills you, will think he offers God service. Think about Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul as he was, as he was later. He thought he was serving God. On the road to Damascus, seeking out to to, to root out this horrible new sect, this, this new religion as he saw it at the time. He tormented the church. And he thought he was serving God. And on the road to Damascus, he met the true and living God. And his heart was changed, and he was changed. There is nothing wrong with the law of God. It is man who needs changing, not his law. The problem lies in man, or even, say, the church that departs from it. All belongs to God. It's a righteous law. It is a wonderful law. It is a law to be imitated. It says in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Be followers of God. Now there's some ways in which we are to be like God in terms of his moral pureness, his goodness, his holiness. Now, there's other ways we cannot be like God. We can't be omnipresent. But the ways we are to be like God Is in his moral perfection. We're to copy him, we're to be like him and to love him. Our final point that we're going to look at here this evening is its blessing. It's blessing. It's so we've looked at its necessity, its observation, its righteousness, and finally its blessing. This is a righteous law. It's a good law. This is the right thing to do. And because it is the right thing to do, dear friends, not only will it give glory to God, not only does it exalt God, it is also for your good. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, it exalts God. Do you remember question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Man has been made what? What? to glorify God and there's a second part to that enjoy him forever sometimes we forget one or the other but they're both important it doesn't say to endure him forever it says to enjoy him forever this is why we're here this is man's chief end this is why we've been made this is the purpose for why we're here It says in verses, at the end of verse 13, verse 13, which I command you today for your good. And then I'm going to look down to verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Now, we talk about the blessings of following God's law. This does not mean that you follow God's law and your life will be easy. Everything will be wonderful. Everything will be rosy. Your your bank balance will be full. You'll never have any problems ever. Again, smile, you're a Christian now. It's an ugly thing that I've seen in tracks over the years. It's a lie. And you tell people this, and they think they're converted, and the moment there's any trouble, they will be back out into the world with an even harder heart against the gospel. There's a sense in which, dear friends, when you come to Christ, your life will get harder. Still blessed, but your life will get harder. What do I mean by that? What does the Beatitudes say? Jesus said this, blessed are those who are persecuted. Is persecution a pleasant thing? For righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice. And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Still blessed. The, the, to follow and God's law, to be a follower of God, is the most blessed reality. We are the most privileged of all people upon the face of the earth. To have our eyes open to how wonderful God is. But in that blessing, there is suffering. In that blessing... There is hard times. We are blessed to know the light of the law of God. Now verse 20, we as covenanters, our ears should really pay attention because verse 20 says this, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast, and what? And take oaths in his name and take oaths in his name this is friends this is not just for the Old Testament this is a practice that goes right down to Christian history take oaths covenants covenants it's not just any oaths there are oaths that Christians should not take but what we're doing here in taking oaths is binding ourselves to what we're already bound to to what is already our duty as Christians. We are binding ourselves even more so. By promising before God. We will fulfill these duties. Which are already commanded in the law of God. And think of the blessings that would come out of this. I'm just going to look at one area. Where we take vows. And we see the necessity of vows. And we perhaps we'll even see the blessings of vows. Marriage vows. Can you remember the vows, the people married here, that you took years ago? Imagine if we would take our vows more seriously, those promises that we made more seriously. What would come out of that? Blessings or cursings? Blessings. We would cherish our spouse more people coming into ministerial office, people coming into the ruling eldership, they make oaths before God and the congregation. Blessings come out of these oaths if they are kept. But also, on the other hand, curses come in the breaking of them. Dear friends, we are so cavalier with oaths today. I think it is one of the reasons why so many marriages are breaking down. There's complexity and all sorts of things, of course. But we must be careful to keep our own oaths, our own promises, to be people of integrity. Because in society, people are not keeping their oaths. People are not keeping their promises. And they don't see it as a serious thing. Oaths before God are not taken seriously. But when they are taken seriously, when they are kept, there is wonderful... Joyful blessings to come out of that. To follow the law of God is really to follow God. None have done this except for one. And if you trust in him, the Lord Jesus Christ, he won't see your sin. Gone is that record. He will say before you, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, justify righteous, holy. And if you have been changed, if you've repented of your sins, you now love Christ, you cling to Christ, and in following Christ, what will you do? You'll love and delight in his law. You'll love and delight in his character. You'll love and delight in who he is and what he has done. For as Jesus said, if you love me, if you love me, And he said this to a generation that largely said it loved God, but didn't. If you love me, keep my commandments, because dear friends, this is the fruit. This is the evidence that you love him, that you keep the law of God. Amen.